The will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. So says Article 21 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the UN accepts. Democracy is closely linked to the rule of law and the exercise of human rights and is one of the universal and indivisible core values and principles of the United Nations. But, at present, democracy seems to be under threat from many quarters, not only from movements such as ISIS, but perhaps possibly from um, the election of Donald Trump, we have to see. But even before his election, the United States was not high, not rated highly, on the Economist's 2015 lists of countries which are classified as having full democracy. So they classify about 160-odd countries, and some of them have got full democracy. Anybody got any idea where the United States would fit within the list of 20 countries which they classify as having full democracy? 15? 17? Sorry? 20. <laughs> well, one should not necessarily laugh at things which seem ridiculous. If Donald Trump can get elected, then you can believe that the Economist ranks the United States as the bottom in the list of, state, of states with full democracy. So, and now with the election of Mr. Trump, who knows what the future will hold? Well, we have two experts here tonight who hopefully can help to clarify the situation. So, the first speaker is Professor Matt Kvertrup, and he is the Chair of Political Science in the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University. And Matt is going to give us a brief introduction to the history of democracy, and then afterwards, Professor Mike Sowert, who is currently on research leave, um, supported by the Leave Home Trust from his position in the Department of Politics and International Studies, or PACE, at the University of Warwick. Mike will then look at the future of democracy, again for about 20 minutes, and then we'll have a conversation where you can put forward your ideas. You might want to make notes about what ideas come up. Okay, any questions before we start? Okay, so can I introduce Matt Crutcher to you, please? Thank you very much. You can clap if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a bit like that Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize before he got started, I think. And you might start heckling in a second. Um, I will talk about, uh, well, two things really. I'll give you an overview of the democratic history of the world for the past 2,400 years. Um, in, in briefly. Uh, briefly, yes, briefly. Right? Um, brief is okay, I hope. Um, I will also talk a little bit about Machiavelli and Brexit and Trump and Orson Welles, I'll start with. I think that most of you are of a vintage where you don't know Orson Welles. The actor Orson Welles? I see other people are nodding. Yes, you, you, yeah, So uh, back in the day, in the in the 1950s, there was a movie called The Third Man that some of you might have watched. Uh, if you haven't, you should because it's it's absolutely excellent. And in that movie, the script is written by by Graham Greene. Uh, there is a, 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 a an interval where uh, it was like a gap 
in it, basically, and he's saying, you know, what, what do you think about democracy? Don't you reckon democracy? And then there's Orson Welles' character is supposed to just pause there. And Orson Welles said to the director, it seems a bit awkward, this little pause here, so, so I'll, I'll just fill out the gap here. Uh, and then Orson Welles comes up with what I consider quite an interesting uh, political science observation, a political history observation, where he says, look at Italy... Uh, they've got 500 years of war, and what did they come up with? Michelangelo, um, and Raphael, and, and, uh, and a long list. A, a long list of Italians. And then he says, what a, "Look at the Swiss. The, uh, look at Switzerland. They've got 500 years of peace and brotherly love, and what did they come up with? The cuckoo clock, uh, <laughs> which is." Uh, as off a cough remark, was was pretty good, and Orson Welles uh, was a great actor and director, of course. Uh, now, I would argue uh, that Orson Welles was a much better director and actor than um, democratic theorist. In fact, I think it's the other way around. Uh, but first of all, the cuckoo clock wasn't actually invented in Switzerland. It was invented in Germany, so they actually didn't come up with the cuckoo clock. But I would argue uh, in the next uh, probably 18 minutes that I've got to go, um, that democracy actually is more likely to create uh, good art, good peace, good prosperity, and all the things that we like, in, in other words, uh, all good things go together. Now, um, there is a reason for that, and the reason for that, uh, the reason that democracy tends to work, uh, tends to produce results that are, are better for most of us, is that democracy system that allows people to criticize things. Um, the uh, Indian economist and Nobel Prize winner Amitai Sen said there's never been a famine in a democracy because no opposition party would allow a government to get away with such incompetence. Uh, so therefore, if you look around the world, there's never, according to Amitai Sen, and I've got no reason to think that he's wrong, I certainly haven't found any examples of that, there's never been a democracy without a famine. Uh, or with a famine, uh, but the other thing would, would be ridiculous. This should be erased from the tape whenever you do it. Uh, but um, so the, the, the main thing is that in a democracy, you have the ability to criticize. In China, there is a, uh, I'm trying to, to cover the whole globe. We are the United Nations uh, um, here after all. Uh, Association. Association, yes, yes. But I, I think we're, we're part of the United Nations, uh, uh, Coventry anyway. Um, in China, there's a saying that uh, three stupid shoemakers know more than one wise man. And the idea, uh, which is also one that Aristotle, the great Macedonian philosopher, came up with, is that if you have the combined knowledge of people, the combined ability to criticize, correct, um, basically sort of point out whenever there are problems, then you are more likely to get the optimal result. It might be that there will be one individual, an autocratic ruler or whatever, uh, who has, you know, absolutely, is very enlightened and knows many, knows many things, but the combined knowledge of the people is always more likely, thank you, um, is always more likely to spot all the difficulties that you will have along the way. And if you look at the history of democracy, then the history of democracy is, a, um, is not quite a, a, a linear one. In fact, in most periods of history, we, we haven't had democracy. We've only really had democracy, 
well, for a, for a hundred years, if you if you want to be absolutely precise about, it, since Australia, I think, was the first country to introduce uh, votes for, for for women, uh, and, and I'm not sure if Tasmania was the first one, but we'll we'll leave that out now. But Australia or New Zealand oh. were the first place to have uh, votes for women, but democracy in the in the true sense of the word, as well the sense of the word we have now, the true sense I'll leave to Mike, uh, uh, later or, or, or not, as the case may That's be. That's a challenge. That's yeah. a challenge, it's a challenge, yes, but we'll, it's a dialogue as well, as we're already establishing here. Um, but it's, it's only been a, a past the 200 years we've had it. But if we go back and look at the things that we could possibly call a democracy, then if we go back 2,400 years, then the Greeks, of course, famously uh, had a democracy uh, the Spartans had a democracy. Interesting, the Spartans back in the day elected their kings, and they had a, uh, a a senate of elders, and then all the other people could vote. In many ways, the Spartan constitution was very much like the American constitution, uh, and everybody had to contribute to commun communal meals all the time. Uh, and one of the reasons, uh, uh, so Aristotle argues, and I think we we, we can we can we can. Except that one of the reasons why the Greeks were so successful in many ways was that they had the ability to criticize. In the, if we go back to, to ancient Greece, they had uh, great art, they had great literature, and they had a vigorous debate. And that vigorous debate meant that if you had public policies that plainly didn't work, somebody would say, well, I'm sure you're very clever, but that doesn't really work. Uh, and then you'll be able to spot differences. Another place that was also democratic in those days was Carthage. Uh, we probably know about Hannibal going over the, uh, the Alps with his elephants. Now, at an earlier stage, when Carthage was quite successful, uh, they had a, a democracy that was not unlike the American system now, though they had more direct democracy. At some stage before the Second Punic War, I know I sound like a history teacher now, yes? So you're saying they had democracy, but as far as I'm, I'm aware, women couldn't vote, slaves couldn't That's vote? That's right. They had a sort of democracy, I think I said, but it's, they certainly had a different system than, uh, than a system that was just run by, by one single autocrat. And they had the, the thing that they had that was democratic, no, not perfectly democratic, uh, in, in any way, shape, or form, uh, was, uh, was the ability by some people criticize. Uh, we could probably say that Britain didn't have, uh, well I'll come to Britain in a second, uh, so it's not perfect democracy in, 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 in any way, which we don't have today either. I mean, uh, you know, people who are 17, for example, cannot vote in general elections. Um, so if we sort of go forward, then the, the Romans also had a, a system of democracy at the time. Well, I'll just go back to the, the Carthagians. Uh, at some stage, that system breaks down, and, and Hannibal comes in and decides, well, let's go to war with the Romans. Let's bring elephants over the Alps and attack them from, from the north. Now, I would argue that one of the reasons why the Carthagians lost in, in the end to the, the Romans, the Romans who at this stage had a well-functioning Senate and, a, uh, uh, and a, a, a sort of democracy, I point taken, Phil, um, was that the Romans were able to, and certainly did, vigorously debate uh, military tactics and, and, and public policies where the Carthagians didn't. Uh, Hannibal might have been a fantastic strategist. In fact, we know that he was, uh, but he wasn't infallible, uh, and democracy then allows that uh, system to uh, where we have uh, criticism. 
We then, when democracy breaks down, we have what we call the Middle Ages. Uh, the Middle Ages, some people also say the Dark Ages, uh, which uh, stop, uh, well, they, they, they continue. When we get up into the, uh, sort of the, the, the 11th century, 12th century, the Italians, uh, the ones that Orson Welles had only had uh, war and all these things, actually develop a kind of democracy, again, without women, though at this stage no longer slaves, uh, but all citizens in, in, uh, in many of the Italian city-states city states can, uh, can vote, they can debate things, and that coincides with the great leap forward where we have Petrarca, we have Dante, uh, and later on we have all the great artists. So it's not 500 years of war uh, that established that in, in, uh, in Italy at the time. In fact, it was a relatively peaceful period of Italian history where they allowed uh, the men to be involved in, in politics and when that starts breaking down then they start having uh, war and, and all sorts of other things. Again at this stage democracy is patchy and um, but there is one great theorist of democracy at the time uh, who's, uh, who gets a bit of bad press which is Machiavelli and I guess most of you would have heard of Machiavelli. Yes, yes. yes uh, 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 even in, uh, in, in Downing Street there are certain sort of sentences from, uh, from the prince that are written over the doors, which is, uh, I'm sure that Theresa May is looking at them every morning, but uh, they're in Italian, so maybe it doesn't help. I don't know how her Italian is. Uh, but one of the, the things that uh, Machiavelli wrote was, in addition to the prince, which is, uh, you know, widely read and uh, uh, which has got a number of, 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 of acute observations, but it's, it's quite a cynical uh, book was actually written as a job application. He didn't get the job. Uh, but um, he wrote a small book called Discorsi, or Discourses, uh, in English, where he says, and quite profoundly, he says, if you have democracy, uh, then democracy is a way of having an outlet. So people can challenge their feelings, and I've got the quote somewhere here, uh, where he says, an outlet is provided that for that feeling which is apt to grow in every city. And when such ill feeling there is, if there's no normal outlet, there's no recourse for it, then we will end up with abnormal methods that are likely to lead to disaster for the republic. So, um, in a democratic system, you have a way of basically expressing all the ill feelings that you have. If you don't have democracy, then you're more likely to get people out in the street, uh, which is one of the things that we, uh, we would have. I'll, I'll shortly come back to, to, to that particular point. And also come back to the point of why we don't have a crisis of democracy, why democracy is probably more, uh, um, is, is in a less of a crisis than it's ever been before. And, and I would even argue that Donald Trump's an example of how democracy is working well. Uh, Philip is disagreeing with me. Other people might do now, but I'll get to that point and you can, you can, hate, you can start hating now. Uh, I'll do that later. Um, anyway, um, just on the trajectory of the history of, uh, of the democratic world, um, around sort of 1500, there are very few democracies uh, around the world, still by your definition, Philip, it, 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 you wouldn't have democracies anywhere. The Dutch are the, the partial exception to that. Uh, the Dutch don't have a democratic system, but they do establish a republic uh, when in the sort of around 1500 they get rid of the Spanish. The Spanish basically they used to be run by the Spanish. They set up a republican system of the different uh, provinces. And what is interesting here in the Netherlands at the time, 
keeping with the with the, the the art argument is that all the arts that you have, all the Rembrandts and the Van Hels and uh, and so on, are established on this system. They they agree that they shouldn't have censorship. Everybody should be allowed to express their views. They should they talk about tolerance. Tolerance comes basically is, is a Dutch idea. Most of the great philosophers go to the Netherlands to publish stuff, publish stuff, and the Dutch become incredibly successful in business because. Well, possibly, I would argue, because of democracy. They also, uh, at this stage, a little bit later, uh, the Dutch being, you know, establishing an empire overseas, which is hardly democratic, by the way. Uh, but in their internal politics, they, they certainly have left room for debate. Uh, one of the, the interesting things from this period of time, we're sort of fast-forwarding to around sort of 1688, uh, is that there is a small failed state... Uh, in the island, in an island just off the Netherlands, uh, this failed state has a uh, has you know has religious wars all the time. The different religious factions are fighting with each other, and therefore the Dutch fear that they have to conduct a humanitarian intervention, uh, which is what we call the Glorious Revolution. Uh, but it's interesting that the Netherlands at the time—I know I'm deliberately provocative there—but uh, um, but Britain then develops not a democracy, but certainly a system that moves towards that. And then gradually, and I'm sort of uh, you know, coming towards the conclusion of the, of the, of the, of the brief history, uh, over the next 300, 400 years, more and more countries establish institutions where there's a possibility for debate. Not democracy uh, everywhere, certainly. Uh, in Britain, we, 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 we only, in, in 1832, we have the Reform Act that sort of increases the franchise to about 5%. Uh, and, and, and certainly not women, certainly not uh, people who don't have property and so on. But, but gradually, uh, we, we, we moved uh, towards that. Now, and then there's sort of the, one of the things that is interesting from the, the democratic point of view also is that we tend to look around the world. We say, well, we've got, you know, the, the, the Arab Spring, you didn't get anywhere. Uh, and, uh, and then you just end up in violence and all sorts of things. Now, if we look at how democracy was established in, in most countries, uh, it is established as, as a result of, of, uh, of, um, of demonstrations, bloodshed and what have you. In Switzerland, which is now the most peaceful place in the world, which of course Orson Welles talked about it, though they have not invented the cuckoo clock, uh, in Switzerland in, in 1840, they appointed a theology professor, who, and it was rumoured that the theology professor didn't believe in God, and that led to riots in Switzerland, and uh, I think about 20 people died. And then afterwards, they had a little religious war, just for good measure. Uh, and then after that again, they introduced democracy, and uh, they thought the Catholics and the Protestants could never agree. So the radical parties said, well, we should have lots of democracy, because we would always have a majority. And then in the end, the Catholics and the Protestants teamed up, and then they, they reached some sort of, um, um, well, kind of balance, if you like. But what is interesting is that Switzerland is sort of, haven of tranquility now, which is just sort of, you know, rich bankers and people who go on skiing trips, at some stage was a place where they were fighting over things, they were fighting religious wars. Uh, so therefore, I think there's a bit of hope uh, in, uh, in many of these places. Now, I don't know, I have no idea how long I've been talking now, so... Uh, You've got three minutes. Okay, well that's brilliant, 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 brilliant. And then we'll spend three minutes on, uh, on Donald Trump and, uh, uh, and that particular thing. Now, a lot of people say 
that uh, Donald Trump is is a buffoon, and he might, if I'm saying this, Donald, you will see, you will look at me now, and, uh, and you'll be very angry. Uh, now, uh, or not. He'll be tweeting as we speak. He'll be tweeting as we speak, you know. Uh, Shut him up. Professor Quartrup. Uh, uh, actually, one of my old flatmates is, uh, is, uh, is lined up for a job with him, which is, he's not going to get a Christmas card this year. Anyway, um, but one of the things about Donald Trump, much as I would not have voted for a man, much as I have problems with Brexit, which is a little bit of the same kind of thing, is that it allows people, Donald Trump allows people to actually voice their, their criticism. It is, as Machiavelli put it, I'm sure Donald Trump hasn't read Machiavelli recently, uh, he allows an outlet. If people are angry and there's no way of channeling that anger out, then we're going to get people rioting on the streets. When people are sort of comparing Donald Trump to Hitler and fascism and so on, I mean, just look at the picture of Guernica. That is fascism. Lots of people getting killed. In Germany, on an average month, in 18, 1931, 200 people would die every month as a result of political violence. In America, it's considerably fewer than that. Uh, in fact, in America, they used the outlet of democracy, even of the sort I wouldn't vote for, uh, to, uh, to actually to, um, to, to have a, a peaceful way of doing things. Now, it might be that if you're on a zero-hour contract, you might not particularly want to listen to a candidate who gets uh, £400,000 for, for, for a talk. Now, I personally would have voted for Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, are you listening? You can tweet now. Um, but the fact that you have a democratic mechanism of getting this out and the fact that he then has to govern, the fact that you have politicians who can't just criticise things, but they actually have to look after how the sewage system is in, in, uh, in Lower Manhattan, Lower Manhattan or whatever the policies would be. Whenever you allow people an outlet for their rage, then democracy is more likely to work. So therefore, I would say democracy works because it allows criticism. It allows a, all the different voices, even the voices of those who may not know a lot to at least criticise and at least say, hey, wait a minute, are you sure this is going to work? And it's those debates that make democracy more successful and it's that debate that actually gives me a little bit of hope for the future and by the way we've never had any period, any period in history had so many people living in what can be described credibly as a democracy as we have today so while things are not perfect they're certainly not as bad as a lot of people like you to think that they are thank you very much Uh, and so now we have Mike Seward from the University of Warwick to talk about the future of democracy. Thank you very much. Well, I deserve that, but we'll see how we go. Um, I've, I've deliberately um, not prepared a great deal here. I'm going to make you do some work. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Firstly, I think a couple of... The, the Machiavellic... I'm going to throw in a couple of my favourite quotes as well. You may have heard of them or not. But um, the Machiavelli one was interesting. I didn't know there were quotes in, uh, in 10 Downing Street. I wonder if um, better to be feared than to be loved is one of them. It's actually not there. But um, uh, uh, nothing is more difficult than to change your nation is, is there. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Not a council of despair, probably. But uh, um, OK. Two quotes that I think help... Um, Help me, at least, and may help you to kind of locate. What, what field are we kind of 
democracy is such an incredibly broad term, and we'll come on to this, people have very different ideas about what it is, or even if they agree on a definition, which bits of that definition are most important? Okay? And what is most critical? What sort of institution, what sort of practice, what sort of attitudes are most important or should have priority if this place, if this system, if this practice, whatever one we're talking about, is to be called reasonably to be called democracy. So my quotes. Uh, Matt and I were in the actually in the Cabinet Office building yesterday talking about referendums and Brexit, and so we might even come on to that because some of the themes there were, were interesting. How do you do direct democracy so that it's fair and reasonable was kind of maybe a summary of the question on the table at, at that seminar um, uh, yesterday, very relevant to this. Uh, I spoke there in the afternoon and nobody had trotted out the famous Winston Churchill quote by that point, so I made a point of it. Um, does anybody know what I'm getting at? Yes, exactly. Almost word for word. So uh, in a debate in part, I don't, I'm not even sure of the, the context of the parliamentary debate, but, but post-World War II, Churchill in the House of Commons said, democracy, of course, is the worst imaginable political system. And then he did pause for quite a long time. Yeah. It's the worst, of all, worst imaginable, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. Now, well, one reason I like that quote is because it reminds us that, I think it reminds us of two things at least. One is that democracy is messy. It is often chaotic. It is often frustrating. Sometimes it is sclerotic. It's difficult to actually get anything substantial done. It seems to involve different factions and individuals compromising on their ideals as much if not more than pressing their ideals, whatever we may think of a particular party or individual politician's ideals. Democracy is a dreadful, messy, often incoherent, frustrating way of thinking about and practicing politics. It just so happens that it probably is the case that any other system is just worse. And possibly worse in specific ways. Worse in the sense of more dangerous. Matt has already alluded to this. Yes. Less respecting, ultimately, of freedoms and rights, what we often call civil rights of individuals, for example. So the fact that democracy is not some utopian ideal, it's a, it's a messy series of institutional and practical compromises, wherever it's conceived and wherever it's practiced. The second quote, when you get you know, professors of political science, uh, especially those who think that they're political theorists or identify with that label, which Matt probably does sometimes, I do most of the time. I don't really care about disciplinary boundaries. I couldn't care less, to be honest. Um, I think they just get in the way. Um, but, but one thing that um, uh, political theorists and academics who think about democracy often, often do is try and tell you what is right and wrong about democracy. The debates, and I think the debates more generally as well, I think of some of the debates around Brexit and what was the democratic way to vote and so on, and what, what Trump does or does not do to democracy. We get hung up, feel free to disagree if you want, but we get hung up on the rights and wrongs. It's a moralised kind of debate, very moralised. Everybody's got their views and their view is right and they may or not want to compromise and everyone's got an attitude, everyone's got an opinion. So much is about the rightness and wrongness. So, so my second kind of quote that I like is from Ben Bradley. Now, Ben Bradley, I don't know if anybody's... Not as famous as Winston Churchill, but Ben Bradley was for many years, and most famously perhaps through the Watergate years, 
was the um, proprietor and editor of the Washington Post. Anybody seen the uh, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, um, All the President's Men? Ben Bradley is the guy played by, I'm stretching now, Jason Robards. Jason Robards, the, the editor. Um, yeah. Um, Woodward and Bernstein's editor of the Washington Post. And Ben Bradley, in an uh, uh, autobiography, said, uh, I really got interested in political journalism. I really got fired up by political journalism in the 60s in the context of the Vietnam War in the USA. And he said, but my interests were very different. Everybody else was going on about the rightness and wrongness of the war. I wasn't even interested in the rightness and wrongness. I was interested in the whatness, he said. The whatness. I like this word. It's not even a word, but I still like it. Um, but what, what was going on? You know, how much can you talk about rightness and wrongness until you've dug into the whatness? You know, what is it? What do we think democracy is? What do we think is wrong with it? What are the poss- possible remedies for the things that we think are wrong with it? Let's not be condemning or moralising too quickly. So I would encourage this, because so much of what passes for debate about, about democracy is quick moralising dismissal of other people or other institutions or other countries' ways of doing or not doing democracy... The whatness, what is actually going on? How do different people conceive of democracy? How do they, what do they think they're doing when they're doing democracy? Why do they do that when they think they're doing democracy? Okay. <coughs> so what the hell we think democracy really means and requires of us is actually a pretty complicated question, no matter what context, country or locality or whatever you're, you're thinking about. And so it's in that kind of context um, that I want to throw it open a little for a moment because... Um, the question of does de- was it does democracy have a future? I haven't got the does democracy have a future? Now presumably we're we're standing here in Coventry uh, and uh, we're we're on the kind of aegis of a UN association and presumably that topic is on the table because some of us, Philip probably to begin with, have fears about democracy. There are concerns. There are there are worries. There's something going wrong. There is at least implicit in the question, the fact that democracy, whatever that is exactly, whatness, yeah, um, may not have a future or may not have a future that, that we might like or might share or, or might be happy with. Um, so I would like to hear um, from a small number of you worries, concerns or fears for democracy or for the future of democracy. Um, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm not going to you know, tear your answer apart in any way. I, I want to kind of bounce off it. So have I got any volunteers? Yes, start with you. Um, you said um, you see our problems with democracy or what you think is going I think of kind of fears or concerns or problems, if you like. Yes, I'm happy for you to put it that way. Um, mine is to do with the media. I feel like uh, because of democracy, we've given so much freedom of speech, freedom of expression, that the media has really run with it, so they're not regulated, they just report anything, and they cite freedom of expression, freedom of speech. So I don't think the media is doing their due diligence or journalistic integrity when they do their reporting, like with terrorism, they don't really dig deep, they just, it's like blanket uh, reporting, they just report something immediately. And, um, that would cause chaos because they can report something wrong and then they will cite. I think Margaret Thatcher tried, had a problem with this. She said um, that the media provides fuel for the oxygen, fuel of oxygen, oxygen. for the terrorists. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's good. Thank you. And what's your name? Uh, Jemima. 
Thank you. That's good. We'll come back there. Yes? Um, it's more the, again, the, the, the media and fueling fear amongst the population that I think that um, people will be more willing to sign away their sort of rights and what people take for granted under democracy. So it might get that bad, maybe with false flag events, that we then end up with a, an autocrat and then it all goes really terribly wrong. A sad story, yes. And your name? Amanda. Amanda, thank you, Amanda. Ooh, one or two more possibilities. Can I come there? Yeah, yeah. Come back uh, uh, it's again with the question of whatness of democracy. So mm. if you're expecting that democracy is a concept which is to be of a representative form of government, does it really exist anymore? Does it really exist anymore? Anywhere, for that matter. When you look at the number of people who are going to polls, when you look at the polling percentage and how the entire thing is being reflected and affected, just like how she pointed out, by the media. Now, when the media and the social media comes into play, how does the voting pattern get affected? Now, he had mentioned about outlets. Now, democracy being an important aspect of outlet, or outlet is something which is being permitted by uh, democracy. But does it, does it really result in anything? Or does it really... So is your problem that um, there are not enough people voting, there are not enough voters? No, my, my, my problem is that democracy, or I would say that mm -hmm. democracy in its intended version doesn't exist. Okay, we'll come on to that, because I, um, one thing I'm leading towards, depending on how much time we have, is kind of what do we think democracy is, how do we define it, and therefore how much of it can we see in practice? So what, but that's about right and wrong. You, oh. did, you did mention about the right or wrong of it. Mm. But if you're going to think about... Uh, no, right definition's not about right or wrong. Definition's about what it's is about it. concept. No. It's about what is it? Yes. Oh, right. oh, values are built into them. Yeah, we'll come on to it. I take oh, the point. I absolutely take the point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, your name, sorry. Thank you. Yes, far away. Um, my concern is that with Trump and with the rise of right-wing groups um, within Europe, the rights that we've come to think of as democratic, women's rights, the rights of gay and lesbian and trans people, the rights of black people to actually vote in America, that a lot of these rights are going to be um, threatened by the division that's being the racism and the division of one section of the population against another that we've seen being very deliberately fostered by Trump but by other right-wing demagogues as well and also the rights of poor people which I think and it's very difficult to separate democracy from the right to basic um, housing, food, shelter I think um, those given that we're at a UNA meeting surely those fundamental rights are also can they be thought of as people's democratic rights as well in a, a civilised society I would, I would think so Okay, I'd like to take some more, but, but yeah, we'll do one more then. Go on. Yeah. Do you think there's a, I think there is a parallel between um, the behaviour of President Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. If you look at them, the history of these two guys, how they've been approaching the politics, right? Um, remember, Reagan created an economic boom in 1980. And then he then needed to invade uh, an island. Is it Grenada? But what's your worry about democracy? Well, the worry is that Trump is reproducing this. He's doing exactly the same thing. He's, you know, he's, promoted, he's uh, trying to create an economic boom. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to move on. I'm going to, I want to get your name and then characterise your point in a moment, if that's all right. Yeah. 
continue? No, not for the moment. <laughs> Can I have your name, though? Uh, Noel Hibbert, yeah. Thank you, Noel. And I didn't get your name. Uh, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. Okay. So I find this interesting. Um, can I come and do a bit? I'm going to run out of time. It's, it's not like a question, actually. It's like a, an observation. Yes. I think uh, democracy is good, but it can go bad if the worrying aspect of it is it's not identified in time or uh, tackled in time. I think that's just what I'm trying to say. Okay. Okay. So fears, concerns, and worries about democracy. One thing I'm struck by, I, I think we've got a, with an interesting collection. I never quite know when I ask this question what's going to come out. It's interesting often what doesn't get mentioned. So kind of voting that didn't necessarily get mentioned. Constitutions didn't necessarily get mentioned. Political parties didn't get mentioned. There are several other things that didn't get mentioned. That's fine. I'm not saying they should have been. I find it really interesting what does come up. What struck me about what has come up there are what I would call preconditions of democracy, stuff you've got to have if you want to have a democracy. Okay, Not necessarily democracy itself, the definition, that wasn't the worry too much. It was stuff you've got to have in place and protect and defend if the democracy is to exist, possibly, and certainly to function well. What do I mean by that? Um, if the media is a problem, the media has almost kind of too much freedom. It's kind of unregulated. It possibly manipulates people. It misleads people. There's kind of very selective facts or the framing of facts. And you know, there's been a lot of debate about this recently. So this kind of raises the question of the preconditions or conditions or preconditions of democracy. How much do you, presumably, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, these basic civil freedoms are fundamental to democracy. Most people would argue, we can argue about what they mean exactly, but just kind of at a more general level, they're fundamental. But here we go, you know, maybe you can have too much of a good thing. Maybe we need to look very carefully and in some detail about some institutions at least and their capacity to be able to speak. So there's kind of a precondition of how much freedom of speech might you want to take away to protect its core values. That, that I find interesting. There was another one that was a precondition there as well, which is about Voting rights and the rights of minorities. Yes? Um, who was mentioning? It was uh, Ruth, you were mentioning this. Yes? Voting rights and rights of minorities. Now, pre presumably, um, in a democracy, there is something to do with equality. Normally, we might come on to that if we have time. And that presumably means equal rights. And if we think about political equal rights, equal right to vote would probably be number one on, on that list. Yes? So, again, it's a kind of a, a precondition. Um, it's not so much voting, it's not so much parliament, it's not so much the constitution, nobody mentioned these things again. It's a kind of a precondition for people to be able to participate, to vote, to have their rights respected. I find that, that kind of interesting. Yes. And equally, it's a bit like the media point. Uh, if you think of democracy, as some people do, I'm not suggesting this, as the majority gets its way. Yes? The majority, majority rule. Some people would. Some dictionaries define democracy as majority rule. This is almost a point, a series of points coming from the other direction, notice. Well, majority rule, but no, we need to be careful about that. We need to regulate some things. Majorities can't touch certain things. We can't let the media get away with saying too much. We, we can't let majorities abolish minority rights. They matter separately and greater. Yes? You see some of the tensions here. You need to protect certain things, ironically in a way, to protect what some people would see as the defining value of democracy majority get their way rather than some minority. Yes, So you get these interesting kinds of uh, relationships. And the economic preconditions as well were mentioned. You know, 
if you have a country where you have huge disparities of wealth between the rich and the poor, just putting it very generally, does that very fact undermine voting, majorities, parliaments, what parliaments can do, the sweet and nice words about freedom and citizenship and equality in constitutions, for example? Does all of that become utterly hollow if the disparities of wealth are such um, that that kind of precondition isn't, isn't satisfied? I think that's where you get Brexit and Trump. And, and, maybe, and, maybe that is, and maybe that's why. Um, so I want, to, I want to move on if I can. Sorry, I was rushing. And you're going to tell me I'm out of time already, aren't you? No, no. Okay. I'm, we're doing all right. So it seems to me, I guess at one point that I was trying to, to make through some of that, I found, it re- I found the, the really interesting pre- preconditional stuff. I, mean, I think that's really interesting. Um, some people argue, I've argued this myself, that democracy is a weird kind of thing. Democracy is a self-limiting, some people say self-binding system. It limits itself in order to protect itself. Or, putting it slightly differently, it needs to be limited in order to be protected. You can't let majorities vote away minority rights, for example. You can't let majorities, even if they're strong, well-supported, popular majorities, undermine voting rights, undermine basic civil freedoms of speech, association, worship, and so on. So there are some things we don't allow democracies to do, or we generally think democracies must not be able to do, in order to be democracies. It's an interesting way of thinking. Okay? Um, and some people who talk about constitutional democracy, there are lots of prefixes for democracy, liberal, representative, direct, deliberative, constitutional. I've, I've written a book where I think I had 42 prefixes in, a, in the back of a book, and then um, a colleague of mine in Australia trumped me by doing 120. Um, but democracy is always kind of prefix democracy, social, liberal, representative, and, and, and so on. But some people talk about constitutional democracy, emphasize this. It's not so much voting and majorities and who's controlling parliament. It's the rule of law and the constitution and the protection of rights that go with that. So the emphasis can come with different ways of of defining it. So, should we dig into this a little more? What what is democracy? I want some definitions of of democracy now. Give give me, okay, you know, the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary has said, right, you're interested in democracy, um, we need a definition, needs updating. Um, give me your one-line definition of democracy for the, for the dictionary. Right. Shall we take one here? Equal rights. Democracy means, do you want to expand it all, kind of equal rights? Well, like you mentioned, so freedom of religion, expression, sexuality. Equal rights for all citizens. Okay, good. Yes. Let's go back to the Gettysburg Address. Is it by the people, for the people, of the people? I've forgotten exactly, but it's pretty good. The government of, by, and for the people shall never perish from this earth. I just can't remember the bit that came beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. compromise. So, uh, so there was a definition. Good. Definitions are generally kind of you know pretty general. So, of government of, by, and for the people would be the, the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, one or, one or two more. People taking to yourself, part yeah. in decision-making. I mean, one of the things, this is a bit of a question as well for both speakers. The, the examples of democracy have been very Western, and um, I'm thinking of societies in Africa or yes. non-Western societies, where tribal societies, where people could participate in making decisions and um, part of the question I have is Mm. whether democracy can be imposed on people who have other ways of making 
decisions and running their societies that the West deems undemocratic, but, but are they? I'd love, to, I'd love to come back to that, if, if, if we can. I want to come to you for a definition. Oh, your definition, I'm going to take it as um, participation. participating can I use the word participation? important decisions. But participation yeah. of the people in important yeah. decisions, yep. Uh, I said uh, utilitarianism. Expand? Uh, like doing uh, something for the benefit of the majority. So greatest happiness of the greatest number was Bentham's principle of utilitarianism, yes? So some people, you, you could translate that as majority rule, yes? Yeah, exactly. Would you be happy with majority rule? No, not in all cases. You don't want to use those words. <laughs> yeah. what, what way would you, if you're doing your definition, what, what way would you preferably put that from your point of view then? Uh, I, I'm just saying like for, for, for us to, 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 to come at a compromise, right? what everybody wants to do, what everybody wants to involve in, I think that should come before, because if some people are talking about a particular uh, phenomenon and they don't, others don't agree with it, but majority are involved in that particular uh, situation, I think it should, the majority should, 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 I'm just, I've made my point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, you're unhappy with majority rule exactly, but it's something like greatest happiness or greatest number, majority rule. That kind of thing. Uh, kind of maximizing happiness or satisfaction or something like that. Yes? Okay. Um, uh, that's good. That's good. I like that. Okay. Um, interestingly, I mean, I'd love to go all the way. Would you like to come in? Yes. Go on. Um, I know that um, most people would like live off by for the people democracy, but. Um, isn't that a bit of a contradiction to the majority rule? I mean, if it's of and by the people, that means everyone is involved. But at the same time, you're saying that um, the more who decide this is right, then the less are not as the less opinion is not much important. Then mm -hmm. it's like a contradiction between two points of views in itself in defining what democracy is. And, and you and you make a good point. One, one more. Yeah. One of the things that I think is important is the peaceful transfer of power, the acceptance mm -hmm. that you lose power if the vote goes against you. Peaceful transfer of power. French have a word for this, alternance. Yeah, they say you don't have democracy unless you have alternation of power. So you have, have an election where there is a more or less peaceful transfer of power. And, and I have colleagues who study democracy empirically or you know, comparatively around the world and one of the standards that many of those scholars use to establish whether a given country is reasonably described as democratic is, have they, in recent times, had two peaceful transfers of power? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you could argue about whether you know, it should be one or three or two or what, what peaceful means exactly, but, but you can see the point, I think. So that's good. I'm sure there could be a lot more, but I find this is very... Again, the answers are always different whenever I ask. Okay, this was a definition. So we have definition, equal rights for everybody... Of, by, and for the people, government by then there's an emphasis not on equal rights but on participation. Yes? And then there's a general one on not so much participation, you emphasize the kind of general happiness, general satisfaction, a system that produces the general satisfaction and happiness. My point was that uh, if, you're, like, if you're making a law in a country, it's going to be based on majority vote, right? Yes. That's what I'm trying to say? Yes. And then you didn't like it when I called it majority rule. But that's okay. I know we're, talking, we're talking about kind of majorities getting their way or 
a wider sense of kind of happiness and satisfaction from the government. Yeah. So, so the point, the point I think is good and clear, and peaceful transfer of power. Now, notice how different these are. Some of these definitions refer to particular kind of practices or particular kind of institutions. Others refer to, at a more general or abstract level, ideals. Yeah? Government of, by, for the people, much more abstractly. Other ones are about what individual people have and do. Do they have rights? Do they participate? To what extent do they participate? Um, so I would argue that some of these... There's no kind of you know correct answer necessarily and strictly to this, but but some of these are not so much points of definition as things you need to have given that democracy is defined a certain way. So again, they're kind of conditions of democracy. They're institutions that will help you to realise democracy, not democracy itself, but institutions that will help you to realise it or protect it or defend it or sustain it. Yes. Or practices like participation of, of people in decision making, which are desirable, desirable contributions to the health uh, of a democratic system. And so I think that's really interesting. So keep an eye out when definitions are asked for, and think about the diversity. I think, um, and I think it's it's often important when, okay, in public debate, I'm rambling on a bit now. Uh, in in public debate. People will tend to say, especially political leaders, political figures, party figures and so on, that's not democratic. Or, I'm fighting in the name of democracy. Yes? They do not say what they mean by democracy. Okay? It can mean, and there is a danger in trying to define democracy, that it can mean almost anything. Sometimes it seems to me that in political debate, in lots of different places, the word democracy just means Good. It's good. I like it. Yeah? If it's democratic, we all think democracy is good. Whatever we think it is exactly, whatever reason we have for thinking that it's good, we all think it's good. And so therefore, the word is just a lovely piece of rhetoric. Yes? I can say, we want more democracy and less top-down power. And you would say, yeah, of course, because democracy is a good thing. So be aware of the danger of it meaning nothing. A word that means everything means nothing. Yes? So the question of definition I find uh, uh, really interesting. I, I would argue, I think, that, um, that the fundamental definition of democracy, I haven't got really got time to defend it, would be something like rule by the people. Yeah? And it's et the etymology is in the word, really, going back to the, to, the, to the Greek that Matt was talking about earlier. So, demos and... Kratos or kratia? I don't know ancient Greek, so I don't know. Is, is it kratos? Yes? So what do these words mean? Demos? Uh, demo means people in terms of power. Yeah. Power of the people. Power of the people, rule by the people, um, perhaps, yes. Um, and if Philip's going to let me go on, I might make one more point. You've got three or four minutes. Oh, have you? That's, that's, that's good. I'm sure you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea. But in some ways, in some ways, this is just where it gets interesting. It's like, okay, rule by the people. Ah, rule, okay, that's fine. Could be mob rule. Ah, rule by the people could be mob rule. Yeah, that's a danger. In which case, presumably, rule by the people, that's why we need these other things. You say, oh, no, the people need to actually participate. Okay? The people need to have some rights. 
another condition you can't you, you need to have kind of majority rule because the people won't agree with you see what I mean so many of the things that have come up I think are conditions for or ways in which you might want to qualify rule by the people demos kratos yes democracy but in some ways that's just where um, just where the it gets really interesting um, uh, a guy called um, Jack Lively, who was a professor in the department that I now work in, the politics department at Warwick. Um, uh, anyone, anyone read novels by Penelope Lively? Jack Lively was the husband of Penelope Lively. I, Jack Lively passed away a few years ago. He was very active in the 70s. You can still find his book. He wrote a very short, it's great, books are 70 or 80 words. I read really slow. don't know about you, but you know, um, it's a classic for, for more than that reason. But, but uh, Jack Lively published a book in the mid-70s, which is still worth revisiting. The book is called Democracy. It'll be in the Coventry Library. Um, and I think he captured something about this definitional issue about democracy more effectively than anyone else. He says, okay, there's actually got a table expressing this in the book. He says, okay, rule by the people. All right, what the hell do we mean by this? This is pretty vague, isn't it? What the hell do we mean by this? We're now trying to get at the, um, you know, the core definition of democracy, as it were, um, and rule by the people. And he says, okay, um, how do you want to think of this? You might want to think of rule by the people as all the people should govern, everybody should be involved in deciding policies, laws, and administration. I'm glancing at my notes because I'm quoting him. Yes? That's a, that's a strong version of it, yes? But it's a reasonable way of unpacking, presumably, you're all by the people. Everybody should govern. What would that look like? I don't know what that would look like. Would that, would that mean constant referendums? Televoting? Teledemocracy, some people call it. It's like they have in Switzerland, isn't it? Participatory. Ah, but they have representative government as well as the referendums and direct democracy, don't they? They have the mixed system. As well as the cuckoo clock. Or not. Yeah? Not the cuckoo clock. Not the cuckoo clock. <laughs> so Lively says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that is a bit chaotic. Maybe that's a bit too democratic. Maybe that's... What, what if the people change their mind tomorrow on what they voted on today? You know, how does that kind of work? So he says, okay. What about everybody should be personally involved in crucial decisions? Okay, we're diluting a little here. Do you see? We're diluting. It's not every decision. It's now crucial decisions. Okay, how do you decide what's crucial... Does that mean you have some direct votes, some direct democracy, and some representative, because representatives would deal with some issues? Okay, that's interesting. Okay, maybe that's less chaotic. Maybe, some people would say, I wouldn't necessarily, that it's less democratic. Interesting, because we're defining democracy and unpacking it. Maybe we're moving down a scale. Okay? Thirdly, let's try this one. This is Lively's third possibility. Rule by the people, unpack it. That rulers should be accountable to the ruled and removable by the ruled. Ah, suddenly we have rulers and ruled. Have you noticed that they weren't there in the first two possibilities? Now we have rulers and ruled. This sounds to me more like representative democracy, less like direct democracy. The first two were sounding more like direct democracy, to some extent. So rulers should be accountable to the ruled, removable by the ruled. Maybe that's still potentially chaotic. Maybe, you know, maybe you want to give the, the rulers a little more, um, a little more autonomy. What about rulers should be accountable to representatives of the ruled? You're building in another layer there. You know, you're getting the people a little further away from the rulers, a little further away from the seat of power, a little further away from deciding decisions themselves. Yes. That doesn't stop. He says, oh, maybe it should be something else. That rulers should be chosen by the ruled. 
Okay, folks, the ruled, the citizens, the people, the voters, are now have nothing to do, almost, nothing to do with actual decisions. All you're doing is choosing those who will make decisions. So this is the thoroughgoing representative democracy. It's the representatives, parliamentarians, yes, who do the deciding. And there's a couple more on his list. But do you see what I mean? Even at that level, unpacking the notion of rule by the people, which I think is a really defensible core definition, you've got all of these choices to make. There is no one correct choice, arguably. I think a couple of things on Libby's list probably don't count as democracy, really. Um, but that's debatable. So I will stop there. I'm sorry I've gone on so long. I'll stop there. Yes. Okay. Thank you. We're now going to have a conversation with these two distinguished speakers. And, gentlemen, would you like to uh, sit down and relax? We can sort of. Uh, you want to stand, stand up and hold you? I'm okay, hovering. Yeah, really. well, I like hovering. Yeah, hovering. Well. <laughs> I suppose if, if there was a point, I think it was with Ruth. Are you Ruth? I could, mm -hmm. yes, so you made the point about this being quite Western. Yes. 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 And I think that's a good point. I think it is. And you're right. Uh, and I think in some ways we there is a, a, a good book by uh, by two Australian colleagues, as it happens, Issa Cannon Stockwell, which is called The Secret History of Democracy, uh, where they look at all the other places uh, in the world that have had types of democratic government. The, the Aboriginal, is that the politically right phrase about people in Australia now, and, and who had systems like that. And, and, and in that particular book, they also have a, a rather interesting chapter about uh, constitutional mechanisms in, uh, in the Arab world, or the Muslim world. And what is, is interesting is we always talk about Magna Carta being the first constitution ever. Uh, in fact, the, the, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, himself uh, actually wrote a constitution called the Medina Constitution. Shua is the uh, uh, Arab word for it. I don't speak Arabic, but I, I did look it up because I knew there was going to be a question like this. And what is interesting about it is that the the the, the Arabs at the time, you know, uh, when when Islam was established, in the the Medina Constitution says that Muslims, Jews, and Christians should live peacefully together. It's part of the constitution written uh, by the prophet they also have the concept of uh, of uh, of accountability uh, and they have a, a another concept of consensus and everything should be ruled by consensus so it, it's interesting you have those traditions it wasn't a democratic system as such by by perhaps modern standards if you like but there were certainly elements of that and at the time when the the, the muslim empire grew they had a system of, of, of accountability and, uh, and, and compromise, and it was based uh, on what we would call the rule of law according to, to those principles. Uh, and what is also interesting at that stage was that most of the, the, the most important commentaries on, on Plato's works were written in Arabic. Uh, so they, of course, also took in ideas from, from there. So, so I thought it's certainly important that we, we look at those uh, mechanisms there. Um, especially from the, the, the Islamic world. Uh, but I think the, the... I mean, it is an important question as to whether we would you can impose democracy. I, don't, I personally don't think you can. I think you, you can sort of create conditions that would probably enable that. But I think there is a danger when, when people in China 
often say, well, no, that's a Western idea and it's cultural imperialism. Mm. Actually, when you go back to the, the, the 1890s, uh, there was a, a vigorous debate in China about democracy. It's just that it didn't, it didn't come off. Uh, there was also you know, the fact that Japan uh, decided about 1880 to introduce a constitution that was a mixture between the German and the British constitution uh, is also interesting, uh, I think. So, so, so I think the... Um, yeah, I'm going to interrupt you. Sure. <coughs> the topic for, for this evening's discussion is the future of democracy. And I think the reason that we're discussing it is, well, can, I, can we first of all have, have a, a vote here? Who, vote, who thinks that we live in a democracy here in the UK? Wavering. And who thinks that we don't live in a democracy? So the majority of people think that we do. And, and the whole of the discussion this evening has been, I think, focused on the type of democracy or the, the responses that you've given have reflected your, the fact you understand democracy as being what we have here in the UK. Almost all of the responses, maybe apart no, from Ruth. Should I go along with that? Well, a lot of, a lot of them. A lot of them. No? No. No? I think I, I was thinking the future of democracy is the future of democracy in all sorts of places. So um, no. I wonder about um, Senegal, for example. I'm kind of picking up on your point in a way, on, on, on both points. Um, there's a fantastic book I really like, written by a guy called Frederick Schaefer. Uh, it's called Democracy in, in, in Translation. And mm -hmm. it's, it's about, uh, he's an American academic, but it's about Senegal. He spent a lot of time living and working there. And uh, in, in the, uh, so in Senegal, most people speak uh, uh, Wolof, uh, the local language, the rather small language, that's the, the dominant local language, and also French. And um, the, the, the French word democracy has made its way by a kind of transliteration into to Wolof, and uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but, but democracy, and spelled a particular way, he's transliterated, spelled it a particular way, and he says, okay, well, this is clearly an understanding of democracy, which, which is deep in the culture of that language and is practiced pretty effectively, actually, in Senegal. But it does have a distinctive meaning which is a bit different from, and a distinctive future, arguably, present and future, which is different from more competitive Western ideas um, about democracy. So he says that the Senegalese notion of, of democracy is much more communal, where it is an expectation that if you speak, if you stand for office, if you are a public actor, that you will strive to present the public interest or the common interest of all. You will fail, no doubt, as we all would, but you would strive that if that is not your motivation, you will be caught out. And that's not, I think, an expectation that we have of, say, party leaders in the UK or party leaders in, in what are all misleadingly in some ways called Western democracies, yeah. where we kind of expect partisanship. We expect that kind of combative partisanship. So there are different different cultures there. I've mentioned very quickly as well in, on uh, indigenous democracy that there's a long-running debate, which I don't think historians have resolved, about the Iroquois Confederacy prior to mm. the... To the um, invasion, conquering, settlement of the uh, what is now the largely the USA. Um, there, there are some, some reasonably credible historical claims that the uh, Iroquois people um, operated a, a confederacy 
uh, prior to colonization, mm -hmm. and that that model of confer confederacy had a strong and fairly direct influence on the nature of federation and the federal system, which persists up to this day in the USA. And, uh, and there are still pretty virulent debates around that, but I think there's a lot to be explored in New Zealand, in Australia, and in, in mm. Canada, I think it's an especially interesting case, uh, so I, I could talk about that for longer, mm. but, but I won't. But yes, I think I'm glad that's come up. Yeah. I think it's interesting, the Iroquois, uh, the, whatever's left of the tribe, yeah. when the, the Quebecois wanted to secede from Canada, they said, we have a much longer history of democracy, and we want to secede from Quebec in that case, which made that's it, right. uh, yes, which was, was, right. was quite interesting, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we can sort of keep going in a way. But yeah. in a yeah. way, that sort of like, they, it, it, it made them uh, pause to think. Mm. I think also, if we go back to the Lively's point about democracy being sort of like, rule over all the important issue, or what was it, what's the actual focus of the, uh, yeah, it's uh, the second rule? Seven. Yeah, it's um, the, the, the second one, all should be involved personally in crucial, crucial decisions. Yes, and I think that's where uh, Switzerland, I feel like in, in my day job, if you like, mm. uh, Michael, you probably said, yeah, I never did anything else, but I was, I was sort of obsessed with referendums until they became... Uh, quite common, and then I'm not trying to move on because you can't do a thing that everybody's interested in. Yeah. Uh, but what is interesting about it is that people often talk about Switzerland being sort of like a direct democracy. Actually, in Switzerland, it's only 2% of all laws uh, that are decided by the people. Everybody thinks that all the Swiss go round and then they, they all vote all the time. What is interesting about the Swiss system is that it is, by and large, a representative democracy. Uh, they have a federal council where the prime ministership rotates. So it's the Swiss people, uh, interestingly, are, is the people in Europe that has the greatest knowledge about policy issues. So if you ask the Swiss, what, what does that law say and what does that law say, they have a great deal of interest. On other measures, the Swiss are the least uh, politically enlightened people in Europe. Because if you ask the average Swiss person what is the name of the Prime Minister, most of them won't know, mm. because it always rotates around. Mm. Uh, and in Switzerland, um, the, the system is that they have a system where they can challenge decisions that the people decide to be crucial. So if a law has been passed and you get uh, 50,000 people in a population of 7 million, I think, uh, if they then demand within 100 days uh, that a vote should be taken, there will then be a vote on that law. Uh, and often the uh, People's Party, which is sort of like a UKIP kind of party, they always say whenever they pass any laws pertaining to immigration, they challenge it, they get all, uh, you know, all their people out, they sign signatures, and there's a referendum. To date, the Swiss have had 11 referendums on immigration. Of those... Oh, by the way, how many do you think were won by the anti-immigration lot? So they had 11 referendums on immigration in Switzerland. How many of these do you think, over the past 15 years, how many of these do you think have been won by the xenophobe types? None? Well, one. Uh, but it, it, it is interesting because then you have the, the, the vigorous debate and then people say, well, yeah, oh, yes, that's right, and maybe he's okay, that person, uh, Mustafa living next door, might be not so bad after all. And, and, and so they come to their senses. So it's interesting, I think, in the Swiss system is uh, that, in a way, if you give responsibility to people, they become responsible. And sometimes if you take responsibility away from people, they become irresponsible. And one of the things I think, personally, and it's a, probably a minority view, uh, I think that in, in Britain we could do better if we had a little bit of Switzerland, sort of Switzerland without the Alps and the, and the snow, uh, but allowed 
people to challenge decisions. Uh, in, in Italy, they, by the way, they have the same system where you can, any law and a statute book, if you get 500,000 signatures, you can put it to a vote. There was a, vote, a, a law on the statute book in Italy that says the prime minister could never stand trial, which Silvio Berlusconi was quite fond of. Uh, then uh, the people of Italy then gathered those signatures, uh, voted uh, on, uh, on that particular law, that <coughs> referendum was passed, suddenly Berlusconi could stand trial, and three weeks later he was out of his job. Okay, we've got, we've got a couple of questions. I'll start with the gentleman over there. Well, what's uh, prompted this meeting that I understand is Brexit and Trump's. It's a phenomenon. Uh, but it's not just for them. Uh, we've got the prospects, uh, possibly before this end of, end of year, uh, a uh, fascist or neo-fascist uh, president of Austria. Uh, we've got the prospect next year of a major challenge from the neo-right in uh, France in the, general, in the presidential election uh, and a number of other countries, the neo Fascists in Germany are estimated at the moment of support of uh, 10 to 12 percent. This is a, we have to try to understand the kind of scale of the threat that this represents and why. And I think it's on the background uh, of uh, the collapse of the banking system uh, in uh, 2008, uh, which by and large subsequently. It's been the poorer people uh, in our countries, in America and in Europe, that have paid the cost of this economically and socially. But it's also on the back of uh, 30 or 40 years of deindustrialization, the shift in manufacturing to, uh, uh, to the east for cheaper labor, and uh, mechanization. And this is. Uh, cause a great uh, deep dissatisfaction and disaffection of large swathes uh, of uh, people who feel that they have been left out of the uh, development in society, not only felt out, felt left out, they have been left out, they are paying the cost uh, of what have just been uh, mentioned, and it's therefore uh, open to... Um, uh, the uh, populist uh, uh, voices, such as uh, uh, Nigel Farage here, or indeed uh, of Trump's uh, in America, uh, to say the blame is on the immigrants uh, that are taking our jobs, taking our health service, and, uh, and so on, and we want our country back. Okay. And exactly the same thing is echoed in America. Mm. We want our country back, okay. uh, and we want to get the Mexicans out right. and so on. And this is a, which is a big challenge for us. It's much, much wider than just the constitutional democratic uh, uh, deficit that we've got. Uh, but it's one that I think is challenging us all to find a more... Uh, a consensus progressive way to tackle this fundamental right. uh, So we need to find a new form of democracy. Three, three, three partial responses. One, and I'll do, I'll do these in point form. Yes. I, I appreciate all the points that you make, so these are partial. Firstly, Trump, Hillary Clinton, in her campaign, addressed the <coughs> suburbs of 
Philadelphia. <coughs> she addressed the suburbs of Pittsburgh. She did not address all the stuff in between. Somebody has described Pennsylvania as Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Kentucky in between. Yeah? And in between, and it's a very big state, uh, you know, Michigan is not so different than, than the others. This is where she lost. Okay? On the popular vote, of course, by about you know, 1,000, or something. But anyway, she lost it because she did not talk much or at all about jobs, about economic insecurity, about very low pay. She addressed a lot of issues that are very important, including attacking Trump for his lies, and he lied repeatedly throughout the campaign about many different things. And he attacked minorities repeatedly throughout the campaign. These things are absolutely true. I would never have voted for the guy, but the people who were in the so-called rust belt, you know, where, where the industries had gone, um, were not addressed by the Democratic campaign. Now, you could look at this in two different ways. You could say, okay, this is a good point for democracy. And in some ways, it goes back to the safety valve kind of point that you were making. Well, the Democrat candidate will do better next time, won't they? They won't be able to ignore that. And, and Trump, hopefully, will be um, a disgraced dead duck before even four years have gone. I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful he'll be um, um, impeached over something. Something illegal will bob up about business. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yes? Possibly even that. Second thing, populism. I, I take your point about populism. You've got to be really careful with populism. I'm not going to come to a definite conclusion on this, but I just say popular power, ruled by the people, is at the heart of any defensible definition of democracy. And presumably populism is something about the populace rising. So, so we need to be careful. We need to be careful about the darkness and the lightness, the shades of darkness and lightness that exist within popular mobilisation, although I too am concerned about the current forms of right um, populism. And the final passing comment, maybe we're in a phase in the UK, maybe in the US, maybe in other places, taking the phenomena that you've described, maybe we're in a phase where we don't just assume that democracy is a thing that is a system around us in which we live, and occasionally we vote, and we might do some other things, most of us. Maybe it is becoming a system in which people who like democracy and believe it to be worth defending may need to be more active in its defence. For example, in defending rights of minorities, where they come under attack. So maybe we're entering a period, maybe ironically, where there will be more democratic activity, more democratic mobilisation and practice, as a result of threats to democracy, however they're perceived exactly. Yeah, just, just to, to, I'll let you come in first. But, uh. oh, thank you. Um, so to his point and, and to yours, I think the... Um, and forgive me, I'm new to politics. I only woke up out of my apathetic coma on the 24th of June, so forgive my naivety. So you're the perfect example. <laughs> yes. um, I think the rise of the right everywhere in my personal opinion, is because of the decline of the left. I think, um, what is it, Margaret Thatcher said that, you know, her greatest success was essentially killing off Labour. I think the same thing has happened in France, because I think France was sort of, from what I understand, was quite left-leaning, and now they're sort of, I gather, sort of a bit sold out, so people feel left behind, because, yes, the greedy bankers, and I mean that literally, I'm um, in rhyming slang, have made a huge mistake and it's the poor, the 99% that are having to, to pay for it so that's why Trump has come in 
and uh, we got Brexit because it was a protest vote. But I think in America, if Bernie Sanders would have got the nomination um, instead of Clinton, I think Bernie Sanders was... Could have been very different. I think Bernie Sanders could have beaten Trump hands down. Mobilised some of the same constituency, interestingly. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, they were, they were sort of offering solutions, but instead of, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is sort of a little nicer and less divisive than Trump personally, and I'm hoping Corbyn can offer the... Okay, thank you. So, Matt, you want to come back and... Yes, just, um, there's, there's two points, actually, uh, your point and your point and, and Michael's points are all um, together, really. I think on populism, it's interesting that populism was actually, in America, some said they had a populist party, mm. and the populist party grew out, in, established in, in the 1880s, at a time when there was mass immigration. Mm. Some of these immigrants had a funny religion. They were Irish, they were Catholics. Mm. And some of these Irish Catholics, these you know, religious fanatics, would blow stuff up. At that stage, you also had massive inequality, you had concentration of wealth, uh, and, and people were quite fed up with, with all of these things. The populists' uh, response to that was more democracy. They introduced mm. many of these mechanisms. They also, in some states, introduced a recall, where you could get somebody yeah. re- recalled from office. Uh, one of the things they championed was... Uh, uh, trust laws, so you could actually, so you couldn't concentrate all wealth. So, one of an argument that's been used in America, which is a lot of the sort of safety valve kind of argument, is that you introduced many of these things. You had direct election to the Senate, which wasn't there before, which they they also. So, in the, one of the arguments in America was that they used democracy to save capitalism from itself. And I think in some ways we can actually learn from that original populism, which Bernie Sanders, in a way, is, 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 is a part of it, but, but Donald Trump is too, where people basically get, you know, vent for their anger and rage, but it, it's challenged into to, to a way. And I think it's, it's good, I mean, it's fantastic, actually. It's good for democracy that we, uh, that we have a debate about it, that we're concerned about it. When, uh, when there was a, the 40th anniversary of the German... Uh, it's not called a constitution, but it's called the basic law, but it's basically the constitution. There was a, a German political scientist, Dorf Sternberger, who's not particularly well known, but he came, wrote a book called Constitutional Patriotism, which then was used by another chap called Jürgen Habermas, and therefore became famous. But in that book on constitutional patriotism, he says, the precondition for democracy is a certain dose of dissatisfaction. Uh, and people should sort of be, go around and be a little bit dissatisfied all the time. Well, it's not right. I don't like it, you know. Uh, and if you have that, then sometimes you get really, really angry. And his argument in his uh, Constitutional Patriotism book was that people shouldn't be sort of involved in voting all the time because then they would just deplete their civic reserves. Because we can't go around and be angry all the time unless you're the editor of the Daily Mail, uh, but who you know, gives you the daily dose of hate. But sometimes when Brexit comes along, uh, or whatever it is, then you are using all your <coughs> saved up, your pent up anger for several years, and now you use it. So we have to have a system that allows people to have that uh, dose of dissatisfaction sometimes and to use it. And I think okay. we don't quite allow that in, right. in the UK at the moment. Right. Thank you, Matt. Now, we've got a gentleman here, and we're running close to the end. So, so uh, my question is again about the future of democracy. Uh, future, sorry, future of democracy as a whole. So, if if I were to say that it was a representative institution, which is which is intended for the progress and welfare of the citizens of the nation, mm-hmm. that that would be an acceptable 
definition uh, of representative and sometimes direct. Sometimes direct. But does it exist in that sense? No. When it is envisioned in that sense, you, you expect that a certain majority of the people are, or, would vote or could, would cast their vote in, in a, uh, with a certain degree of awareness about what the issues pertaining to their vote is and expect that their elected leader would represent them and would voice their concerns in a genuine way. Now, if this, this was the case which existed some while ago, considering the fact that the, how, how the entire political atmosphere has changed and how the entire uh, social atmosphere has changed, considering the fact that we have social media and, as earlier pointed out, the media itself. In the Brexit case, uh, the media itself was had a huge rhetoric about, while the entire issues were something else, they completely uh, ignored the issue and focused, and this anti-EU sentiment was on the rise and was projected and fueled by the media. So there was a direct implication of the media affecting voting pattern, which people immediately regret later or change later. Okay. So when, when such behavioral aspects of human beings can be affected directly, and when there is such a low voting pattern, does it really translate into a representative system for democracy? Okay. Have I can offer an answer you won't be happy with. Yeah. Um, I didn't even get on to my favorite topic, so I didn't get to bore you on my favorite topic. Um, but, but I'm working on a book called Democratic Design. I think democracies can be designed and tailored for particular contexts, particular problems, particular places, much more than we think. Okay, and I'm going to give you two very specific examples. If your concern is exactly as you put, there are two quite specific mechanisms that are used in other places, they're not, not in the UK, which might address that. And there's kind of literature on them and there are, there are, there are social movements and groups that, that, that advocate these things. One is compulsory voting. Okay? Australia, Israel, some other way. Compulsory voting. It is part of your citizenship that you vote and you get fined. In Australia, you get fined $20 or something. The second one is various forms of deliberation. So, um, I mean, Matt's very familiar with, with this as well. There's a whole model of democracy. It's dominated democratic theory for 20 years or so now called deliberative democracy. The idea is that the vote is, well, it's important, but it's not that important. What's more important is talking. Talking, deliberating, learning, and things like citizens' juries you may have heard of. There are other kind of deliberative forums. People talk about deliberation day, get people together in the local church hall, deliberate the day before they vote, for example. There are different variations of this. So all, I, all I'm saying, I haven't answered your question because it's tough to answer, but, but I am suggesting that from a kind of design perspective, there are different mechanisms that are transferable, adaptable, and compulsory voting, arguably, is one where you make the representatives react and respond and listen much more to larger numbers and all different voices because they will all be voting, because they have to. Right. Yes. But then again, is this not essentially a Western constraint? Yeah. In the sense that this is something which is applicable and... It's not democratic. Something that can be applied and something that can be implemented in a Western society. Now, when I say Western society, I mean that... Why not, why not any society? Well, because in any most of the other societies, democracy in its acceptable form of the definition itself doesn't exist. You take, uh, you take many of the other nation, Asian nations which became relatively recently decolonized or any of the other African states. There is this imaginary farce of a democracy, but it doesn't necessarily really translate into democracy. Okay, design it better. Mm. Yeah. But okay. is there not an inherent flaw in the state which prevents it to do it? Uh, we, I, I personally don't believe that there is a place or a culture in the world that is, um, that is not capable of being democratic. I do not believe that discourse. Can I get my one favourite pick of the yes, if we, wanted, if we think of the future of democracy globally, 
Oddly enough, I'm going to contradict myself now. It is not so much a matter of design. It is a matter of something much more fundamental. Educating girls. I think it comes down to two words. Educating girls. Okay, there's a lot of stuff out there on that to, to read about and groups, and uh, Michelle Obama is fronting some of them. Female illiteracy is, is the, uh, really a cancer on the possibility of democracy across different continents, it seems to me. Educate girls. Don't talk about global well, democracy or design. That, I, Educate I girls. I really appreciate that as the final point.